All right, welcome to day 67 of our journey through Scripture. Today we're in Leviticus chapters 17 and 18, as well as Mark chapter 14, verses 17 through 42. Okay, Leviticus chapter 17. Um, This is an interesting passage, um, and what we have is a prohibition against, as verse 3 says, killing an ox or a lamb or a goat outside of the um, whether inside the camp uh, or outside the camp, uh, that is the camp of, of Israel. And uh, if they don't bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to Yahweh, a gift to God, uh, then there is blood guilt. Um, and that person is subject to being, as uh, verse 4 says, cut off from his people and uh, I, I noted before that there is some question as to what exactly this uh, so-called carrot um, punishment is, uh, being cut off. Does that mean killed? Does that mean put out of the of the camp? It's unclear here. Um, but what are we to make of this prohibition? Is this a prohibition against eating uh, all meat except in the context of, obviously, a sacrifice? And um, I think not, because what's going on here is note that the um, that the ox la- uh, that oxen lamb and goats are kind of the primary sacrificial animals these would be what you would be what you would use in the case of a sin offering or a burnt offering that's what these animals are used for in addition the verb that is used for to kill in verse 3 shachat though not exclusively is commonly used for the sacrificial killing of an animal. And then when you go over to uh, verse 5, you see kind of at least one of the, the, the one uh, part of the purpose. Uh, and this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field to Yahweh, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings for the Lord. And so the idea is not that no meat whatsoever is to be eaten, right? There are other, there is other sources of meat out there other than oxen, lamb, and goats. There are, um, there is uh, wild game and things like that. Um, there are birds. Uh, and keep in mind too that this is a pretty agrarian society. Uh, this It's not as if they're eating meat with every single meal. A lot of people, for a lot of people, milk is, a, uh, milk, uh, well, milk, yeah, but <laughs> meat is a real luxury. I mean, Israel at this point is still a, a group of escaped slaves wandering through the wilderness. They're not fully settled. And of course, um, they are having some meat that we've we've heard about the quail that the Lord is providing for them, and clearly they have flocks with them. Um, not surprising, given that their entrance to Egypt was to be shepherds and um, to live in the land of Goshen doing that. But their main subsistence in the wilderness is manna, and this is, in fact, a commandment for their time in the wilderness. It does not hold... After their settlement, you could see that here because it's talking about the camp right there. That it is the, they're bringing it to the tabernacle. Uh, so this isn't a, a broad prohibition against the eating of any ox, lamb, or goat. And um, nor is it even in the context of the wilderness wandering because if they 
want to, then they are to bring it as a peace offering before the Lord. And that is that that God delights in some sense in this peace offering ritual where the purpose, again, is not for atonement. The purpose is not um, really any other reason than simply having fellowship with God and uh, practicing this, this act of communion with the Lord. And so all of the consumption of these kinds of animals is to be centered on that and to be focused on that because that is what God delights in in the um, here is the, is this fellowship with his people and this is what this fellowship symbolizes. Uh, but not only does verse 5 give us a reason that is that the peace offerings may be multiplied, that, that there may be common peace offerings here. In addition, verse 7 says that they shall no more make their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore, a rather colorful way to put it. Of course, that metaphor will uh, appear again many times in the Old Testament, but there apparently is some kind of temptation to idolatrous worship that is also being mitigated against here. So it seems like both of those things are in view. The Lord's desire to have his people offering peace offerings and doing so on a regular basis, even when say, no other sacrifice is necessary, indicating perhaps that God does not want their worship to be merely transactional, like, oh, I've done something wrong, and so I have to go and bring a sin offering and a burnt offering, and while I'm there, maybe a peace offering as well. No, these are to be, um, this is a fellowship that the Lord wants his people to enjoy. And uh, then the other reason being uh, some kind of prohibition against uh, what what the people were apparently tempted to do in the worship of other um, spiritual beings in the wilderness. Then beginning in verse 10, we get the uh, prohibition against eating blood. So, uh, and, and you get a little bit of a description here about the significance of blood in the sacrificial system. And it says that, um, well, if, if a person, whether of the house of Israel or a stranger sojourning among them eats any blood, God says, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. There it is again, the being cut off. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So blood in this system symbolizes life, and it's the actual giving of life that is um, that makes the sacrifice effective, that that makes atonement possible. And um, this, of course, is something that will carry over into the New Testament uh, with the sacrifice of Jesus. Note how many times uh, the significance of Jesus' death is is explained in terms of his blood, right? It's it's his, it's his, in other words, the blood is actually focused on, which, um, and we'll note the places where we encounter that. We, we've already seen it sometime, a few times in the gospel. Today, we'll actually read about communion where he talks about um, this blood is poured out for many. Okay, blood being poured out for many is sacrificial language. Uh, employed by the New Testament writers in order to explain the significance of Jesus's um, Jesus's death and what it accomplished. 
Now, I, I do think it's also important here to note um, that it isn't as if there's some magical quality to the blood, uh, th that there's some kind of law of the universe that God has instated or something that he himself is bound to, where um, unless he gets blood, he cannot forgive. The acceptance of blood as a means of atonement is God appropriating uh, things and symbolism that are meaningful to us and have meaning in and of themselves in order to communicate the seriousness of sin and the costliness of that forgiveness, that for the God of the universe to simply forgive transgression, that, and we know this from theology throughout the whole Bible, I'm not saying that Leviticus itself is, is fully clear about this, but um, that the, the God of the universe who is a perfectly righteous judge cannot simply pretend as if our sins mean nothing and as, as our sins demand nothing, as if, as if it is uh, just to simply say, go, it doesn't matter what you've done, um, you're fine, no problem here, nothing to see here, and he just sweeps our sin under the rug. No, the, part of this system of sacrifice in the Old Testament is teaching the costliness of sin. And he does this by pulling all kinds of things, as I said, that are meaningful in that culture and to that people and meaningful transculturally as well, right? I mean, killing something is a significant act even today, of course. Um, uh, but he's pulling those things in order to show them that. And um, so... I don't think we should be viewing this system of sacrifice or the understanding of the significance of blood as as somehow some kind of magical thing. Uh, this is God simply speaking in terms that we can understand. And of course, there are other inferences that we can draw uh, from the sacrificial system itself, such as the consider, consider the fact that people are offering sin offerings and guilt offerings and all that stuff and burnt offerings all year round. But for some reason in the spring, they need to uh, bust out the linen garments for the high priest and perform the day of atonement ritual. Uh, what does this indicate? It indicates that the sacrifices are not enough. Uh, moreover, the sacrifices must be repeated. They're constant. They're ongoing. They're perpetual. They're not going to stop because human sin does not stop. Um, and even performing all these things and doing them perfectly does not grant anybody but the high priest access to God. And it is the earthly tabernacle that is a shadow of the heavenly one, as Hebrews will say it. And he's, he's only allowed in to the Holy of Holies once a year. And it's very brief. It's basically just to cleanse the place. And so the idea is like, in a sense, anybody looking at this can say, well, you do all this stuff. What is it really getting you? And it's kind of getting you the bare minimum, I suppose we could say, that God, not as if it's a, a not a big deal that God dwells with his people, right? But it's not as if these people are, are enjoying 
perfect fellowship with the Lord. And if you look at where the Bible ends up after Christ's sacrifice, after God has renewed all things, you have um, God's redeemed beholding his glory in his presence, seeing him face to face forever and ever. Um, Christ's sacrifice accomplishes, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a vast understatement to say that Christ's sacrifice accomplishes what these sacrifices um, never could. Um, but all that to, <laughs> I guess that's a little bit of a, of a side tangent. All, I'm, I'm simply trying to explain the idea that uh, the blood here is portrayed as the significant element in the ritual, the, the, the thing that makes atonement. Something is giving its life. The blood symbolizes the life, um, but it's not a magical thing. It's God teaching us about the costliness of our sin and um, the idea that... that um, it is, it is so costly that life is owed, and instead of my life, it is, or instead of the Israelites' life, it is the animal who is on the altar. But then, alongside of that, you have the, um, the weakness of the whole system to do anything really permanent. But it is uh, because of this understanding of blood and its significance that anybody living within the confines of Israel, whether a native or a foreigner— is not permitted to uh, to eat blood, and uh, when blood is spilled, it is to be covered with earth. Uh, also, uh, anything that we're told that anything that dies naturally or is killed by the beasts is uh, to be regarded as unclean. So, an animal that any animal that can be eaten has to be killed with human hands. Um, or it will render a person unclean if they eat it, which is not the end of the world. So obviously if you're starving or something, um, you're unclean until evening and then you wash. Okay, okay. Um, so that's it for chapter 17. Now chapter 18 is, a, um, is a, another very significant chapter in the book of Leviticus in that it is the main chapter on uh, unlawful sexual relations. And uh, obviously this, um, maybe not all of what's said here, but a lot of what's said here is kind of taboo to say in today's culture, but these are God's standards for sexual ethics. And an additional thing that I'll say about this is that if you look at the end of chapter 18, you look at that last paragraph there, it says, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Um, and uh, it goes on to 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 uh, elaborate on that. Um, what's interesting about this is if you look at the laws that have been given so far, um, obviously one would want to say that God does hold all people accountable for a lot of them. So some things like like stuff that's in the Ten Commandments and everything. Um, but a lot of the other stuff, especially the stuff that we've seen so far in Leviticus, is very specific to Israel itself. Like, it's not very evident at all that people not living in Israel are held to these to those kinds of standards. But here, when you read the sexual ethics— it explicitly, uh, in, it explicitly says that those who are not part of Israel, those native inhabitants of the land of Canaan, 
they are accountable to God for these things. God does expect them to at least live up to certain standards of sexual purity, uh, but they do not. And so this is commonly understood as um, as as part of the law that explicitly applies to people that who are not Israel, and um, which which has an, a way of kind of universalizing these commands. That's not to say that none of the other commandments in um, the law of Moses are universal. Uh, it's but some clearly are not. But these are explicitly said to be that, and are explicitly said to be like the main reason here that God is bringing judgment upon the land of Canaan. So uh, the chapter begins with prohibition against many different types of incests, uh, referred to depending on who it is as uncovering nakedness. Uh, so um, you you cannot sleep with your mother or your stepmother. That's your, your father's nakedness. Um, you can't sleep with your sister or your stepsister. Um, you can't sleep with your niece uh, or your own granddaughter or your aunt or your son's wife or your sister-in-law. Uh, you can't sleep with a mother and her daughter. Um, you can't, um, uh, or her granddaughter, or you can't sleep with sisters. And note, th these are all male-oriented, but of course this would apply also for females. But as I've noted, a lot of the laws, especially sexual laws, are oriented towards males. It's interesting to note here that uh, you actually have uh, something of a, um, I don't want to call it evidence, but uh, uh, something that lends credibility to the patriarchal narratives of Genesis. By that, I mean the narratives about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In that Abraham and Jacob both were in violation of things that are listed here. Abraham, at least according to what he says about Sarah, uh, married his stepsister, uh, his uh, father's daughter, but by another wife. And Jacob, of course, marries two sisters, uh, Leah and Rachel. And the way the argument would go would, is that it it's... We would not expect for an ancient culture just making up stories about its uh, its ancestors who are held in such high regard that they would um, make their their primary marriages right the 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 marriages that produced the nation of Israel would themselves be in violation of the Torah. So like this is a something that would be that you would not expect if these were just legends that were being made up, but instead um, the text is transparent about these uh, failings about of these people, which lends to their credibility because we would expect that um, ancestors who are held in high regard would be uh, glossed as kind of heroes, as, as morally upstanding men and women, but as we saw in Genesis, often they are not. And here is a, an extremely striking example of that, where, as I said, the very unions that were used by God to transmit his promise to a people who is compo who, uh, that is composed of uh, their descendants, those specific marriages are ones that are forbidden by Israel's very law. Um, okay, other aspects of sexual... 
ethics here, we read again that um, a man is not to lie with a woman during menstruation. He's not to lie with his neighbor's wife. So there's adultery. And then you have slipped in there, no giving of your children to Molech. Now, Molech is a deity um, also called the abomination of the Ammonites, um, sometimes also called Milcom. Uh, he's called, um, so we will encounter him again, especially in the book of first Kings. Uh, we, and then, uh, we're also told in verse 22, and this is probably one of the most hot button verses in this chapter, especially in today's culture. Uh, you shall not lie with a male as a man lies with a woman. And the text goes so far as to specifically single this out as an abomination. And while it is true that that final paragraph there that we looked at earlier does call all of these things abominations, it is interesting that this thing in particular is singled out as uh, being called an abomination uh, when it's actually when when this law is actually stated. So this is um, a prohibition in the law against. Uh, homosexual relations. And I there's various things, obviously, that we want to say about this, um, and I can't say it all. Um, so I'm just kind of going to restrict myself to what each text says and what each text implies. And um, I'll say that, uh, that here it's noteworthy in that it is the act itself that is prohibited, okay? It's not um, the state of mind or the sexual orientation or or anything like that right this it's it's simply the one who does this has committed an abomination it's it's almost not concerned with uh, some of these identity categories that we have today where i am gay i am straight and i say this because um sometimes um uh people will will say things like that that the bible doesn't have in mind um, a monogamous loving relationship. And um, first of all, like I, I, I don't see a reason to say that here. I, 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 it would seem to me that any of these any of these laws in the context of a loving monogamous relationship would still be in force. Like I don't see any reason to think otherwise. Like would you be able to uh, to sleep with your mom if you married her? Right and and you were committed to yourselves for to each other for life. No, um, would you be able to sleep with your uh, with your daughter and uh, as long as you took her to be your wife? No, these would be um, these would be totally contrary to the will of God, and so it seems uh, it seems to be unavoidable to say that the thing that is spoken of here is the act itself, which has various implications. One of which I've already touched on that that uh, it is the, as far at, le at least as far as Leviticus 18:22 is concerned, it is irrelevant whether or not uh, a person identifies as being actually gay or not or, or whether or not God actually inclined them that way when he created them. It is the act itself, whatever else we want to say about it, it is the act itself that is sin in the eyes of God here. Now, the other thing that I think is interesting is that that leaves open the door, at least in terms of Exod of Leviticus 18.22, and this is not the only thing that the Bible will say about this, that the orientation itself is not 
what is viewed as sin in God's eyes uh, per se. So what I mean by that is that simply having the desire to do something—now, I think it's important to acknowledge that our desires do get twisted by sin, but note that it is not the desire here. Um, I might desire my stepmom. I don't have a stepmom, so I feel like I could say that. Um, but uh, it, it's—and it, that itself is not what's identified as a problem here. What's identified as, as sin here is, is the act. The other thing uh, that I'll note, and then uh, this is the last thing I'll say about this, is that the fact that it occurs in Leviticus is, and just saying, oh, Leviticus isn't isn't relevant, or you know, we're not under the law of Moses, and and all that stuff that we will learn about as we study Paul and other aspects of New Testament theology. Uh, that does the fact that something occurs in Leviticus does not automatically mean that it has no relevance for us or that it's not sub, or that it doesn't apply to us. Recall that the second greatest commandment that Jesus cites, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is from Leviticus. Further, I think we would want to say that pretty much all of the other things in here that um, that um, Leviticus 18, identifies as uh, forbidden unlawful sexual relations, we would tend to agree with, right? Um, the big example might, the, the the big exception to that might be laying with a woman during menstruation. But uh, I mean, these various forms of incest, you, you actually don't have New Testament prohibitions against incest or bestiality or anything. And yet, I think we can all say that we can look to Leviticus 18 to find out what God thinks about those things, even if we're in a different context in redemptive history. And finally, note what I said at the outset, that these laws are applied to other nations as well, that God holds other nations accountable for these as well. And so if there is any part of the law that we could say does hold relevance for people outside of ancient Israel— it is, it is this chapter. And I say all these things not to single out um, people who um, have same-sex attraction and to, to kind of target them or anything like that. I fully admit that I myself struggle with many things and uh, fall short of what God expects of me in many areas of my life. I am not pointing the finger at other people. But I bring this up because this is an issue that a lot of people care very deeply about, and we should care a lot about. And there's a lot of misinformation about how to understand what the Bible teaches on this topic. And as the, uh, I guess you could say, the teacher of this podcast, I feel that it is my responsibility to be honest with what the Word of God says and how we are to understand its relevance for our lives. Okay, let's uh, go over to Mark chapter 14, verses 17 through 42, and, and look at that. So uh, now it is, uh, it is the Passover, um, uh, the, the, the first day of unleavened bread. The disciples have found the room, the room has been prepared, and Jesus is reclining at the table with his disciples. And um, he's got some things to share with them. And first of all, he sa- tells them um, that uh, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And uh, as I often note, I think it is profound that everyone upon hearing, every one of them upon hearing this began to say, is it I? That none of us should consider ourselves so far beyond um, 
acts of unfaithfulness to Jesus, that we would never do that. In fact, that's kind of where Peter ends up um, at the end of this meal, right? Where Jesus is like, he, Jesus tells them, you're all going to flee from me. And, and Peter's like, hey, you know, those guys might, but I never will. And Jesus tells him, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And even, even being told it's such a point-blank, direct way by Jesus, Peter is still denying it. Peter's still denying that he would do this. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so Jesus Jesus warns them that one of them is going to betray him. We've already learned that Judas has, has already gone to the chief priests and has struck a deal with them so that he can betray Jesus to them. And we're not entirely sure of all his motives. Is it jealousy? Is it opportunism? Is it sheer greed? It's probably a combination of things, as most of our more heinous sins are. That is, they are a combination of multiple motives. And uh, Jesus says, uh, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping into the dish with me. And he tells he tells them, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So notice the the divine destiny that Jesus believes he has, the um, the idea it is written of him. He is doing this, uh, as as he said in Matthew, to fulfill, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Um, so he accepts that this is God's will for him, but nevertheless, woe to the one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had not been born. You can imagine the, the, uh, what, how those words must have struck Judas's Judas's ears as he was hearing them. And then as they're eating, he takes bread and he gives it to them and says, this is my body. And he takes a cup and he gives thanks and he gives it to them and they all drink of it. And uh, he says, this is the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Uh, notice the subtle um, significance of Jesus's death, even here in this uh, probably earliest of all gospels, that it that it is it is for many. I'm I'm not just being killed, but I'm being killed for a purpose, and it is for you, for your benefit, for your good, that I will go to the cross. And um, then he tells them, truly, I tell you, we're not going. I'm not going to drink of this again until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Um. As I, as I indicated, um, Jesus foretells Peter's denial amid Peter's, Peter's uh, uh, protestations of his own faithfulness. Uh, and um, Mark is not, especially compared to Matthew, is not particularly heavy on Scripture quotations and things like that, and often pointing out exactly what Scriptures are being fulfilled where. But, um, but here he also uh, notes that Jesus references Zechariah thirteen seven, which we talked about in the book of Matthew. Now, this idea that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, um, and he tells them. But after I am raised up, which again the disciples are still not really understanding what he means by that, I will go before you to Galilee. And so they go to Gethsemane. Jesus leaves his disciples there. He takes with them with him Peter, James, and John, and uh, he's clearly upset. He's greatly distressed and troubled. And despite that, um, when Jesus tells them to remain and watch, he goes and he prays and they keep falling asleep. And uh, Jesus is in anguish here, praying to the Father, Abba, which is a, a an affectionate way of referring to God. This is a direct 
transliteration of the Aramaic of Abba. Um, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Again, a perfect model for at least our heart posture during prayer, that we should ask for what we want, that we should be honest to God about what we're afraid of and what we're uh, what we want him to do, and yet still submitted to his will. Not not my will, but yours be done. Uh, he then comes and confronts specifically Peter. Notice the, the emphasis on Peter here. Uh, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I will note that um, uh, one of the early traditions uh, in the early church— um, Something that several church father of the early church fathers indicate is that uh, Mark was Peter's uh, interpreter and/or translator, that and that he um, much of the material that he got he in his gospel is from Peter's telling of these events. So yeah, so Jesus uh, is focused here on on Peter, and of course they fall. He, he goes and prays three times, and uh, he comes in there sleeping three times. And finally, Jesus tells them in verse 41, it is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So a bit of an ominous ending today, um, leading up to Jesus's arrest tomorrow. But uh, that's it for today. So again, I thank you for joining me. I hope uh, you're um, enjoying and growing from these uh, episodes as I'm enjoying and growing, uh, uh, giving them and recording them. So uh, until tomorrow, uh, thank you for joining me. Keep reading scripture. Take care and bye-bye.